Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome a good friend of mine, Tom Merrick, also known as the Bodyweight Warrior. Tom is a movement coach based on the south coast of England with over eight years of online content, 53 million views and over 640,000 subscribers on YouTube. Tom provides honest and practical guidance for developing bodyweight strength, flexibility, handstands and more. On today's episode, we discuss training optimization, coaching tips, developing from injuries and the benefits of learning new skills. Let's get into it. Mr. Merrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Pleasure, Mr. Tilson. Uh, Good, thank you, man. Good, thank you. Always good to chat. All good, all good. So today um, I'm keen to dive into a few different concepts. Um, Obviously, I've known you for a while now, and we're both doing bodyweight training to some shape or form. And what I'm keen to get into to start with is you're known as the bodyweight warrior online, your YouTube, and obviously social media channels. So what led you to sort of pushing bodyweight training versus weight training in the initial stages? I was just trying to think, since you mentioned that, I was like, actually, how long have I known you? Um, so it's been a, I feel like it's been a while. We've sort of trained on and off. <laughs> so we've, we've, we've talked about these sort of things throughout. Um, but anyway. About two years, I think. About, about a couple, two couple years. years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, usually some form of handstands and, and some chat when we, when we catch up. Um, yeah, to, to answer your question, so the bodyweight stuff... Um, I don't, I mean, you, you know me now, we've trained together enough to know that like there's a good, in in my training and your training, there's a good mix and I would say like a healthy balance of weighted training and bodyweight training. Ultimately, you know, it's, it's it's all about the best tools for the trade, but I think the the predominant focus is performance in bodyweight training, which is where it differs. It's like, just because your thing is bodyweight training doesn't mean that's all you do because there's definitely some weighted movements that just hit things in slightly different ways um, just to do with like, you know, strength curves, um, the the vector of gravity how that acts on things that can be really beneficial uh, but the, the main reason that I started doing bodyweight training was um, I was doing a lot of weightlifting a lot of Olympic lifting back when I was at university and then I ended up getting glandular fever um, or mono if, if for those in the US and um, that basically you know sort of wiped me out for a good six weeks or so um uh, you know beforehand you know i was doing about maybe a 200 kilo deadlift i was lifting some reasonable weight with olympic lifting and stuff and i was just i when i when i returned to training the doctor after that was just like just you know just take it easy you shouldn't you shouldn't really be pushing it too much and i was like okay fair enough so i was like i'll do something easy i'll do bodyweight training um but yeah i just started doing like push-ups rows pull-ups really basic things um without too much loading but actually i ended up really enjoying it um and uh, you know i wasn't i wasn't aware of any bodyweight stuff outside of the the standard sort of bodybuilder sort of knowledge um but i really started getting into as you said the planche the front lever more of the strength moves than anything um not so much the handstands to begin with um and i actually I, I saw some some reasonable progress with it because of the base that i built with with weight training but yeah essentially i never went back to weight training really like one thing led to another uh, i joined the gymnastics stuff at, at uni and, and really got into that there was some of the gb gymnasts there so my my expectations of what was possible was ruined indefinitely watching those guys um and then as for the warrior side of things which i think this this often gets a little bit misconstrued or or 
um, only if you, if you look into it. But actually, the warrior isn't anything to do with like being macho and all this sort of stuff. It's actually a, a psychological archetype from from Carl Jung's philosophy. Um, the, the the it's based on a book uh, called The King, Magician, Warrior, Lover, which is actually written by Robert Moore. Uh, but it's based on he's he's it was a student of Carl Jung, and um, the warrior is one of those archetypes that one of those. Uh, male masculine archetypes and when it says masculine male it doesn't necessarily mean like it's only present in men um, everyone has you know a ratio of that masculine and feminine energy that yin and yang there's always that balance in in somebody some people may be more tender to one than the other so the warrior actually relates to that masculine energy in it and and specifically the warrior is that masculine energy in its fullness uh, and what this means is, is Jung had he had shadow archetypes and and or, or immature uh, archetypes and mature archetypes. So where you'd have like negative masculine energy, which is you know people refer to as toxic masculinity and this sort of stuff, that would be the immature expression of these values that we want to have access to. So uh, so the hero would be the immature version of the warrior. The hero is, is very self-absorbed. They do things for themselves. They do it for the fame, for the glory, all of this sort of stuff. Whereas a warrior uh, is about doing things for the right reasons, right? So it's, the, the warrior energy is is an aggressive energy, but it's not aggressive in the sense that uh, we might sort of typically think of aggression as like, you know, somebody being really up in your face. Actually, you know, one of the dictionary definitions of aggression could be um, working at something with rigor and and energy. So, you know, dedicating yourself to a skill, to a craft. That's what a warrior does. Think of the samurai. So that's that's really you know if you want to be successful at anything in life, you've got to be able to harness the warrior energy in its fullness. So that's kind of where the warrior thing came in. Yeah, because I mean the whole like you said, I think the whole warrior concept. When you look at martial arts, obviously what I've experienced over the last uh, few years is that you need a balance of that yin and yang, so that hard and soft, mm -hmm. because they exist uh, synergistically and together. Because if you have a very hard energy as well. Um, without sidetracking too much it becomes very much you've lost your sensitivity to the environment around you um, yeah, yeah equally you become, you, you, you side, become yeah. a bull in a china shop right exactly you need that tender aggression you need to be aggressive at the right times but you need to be receptive at other times yeah and uh, the other thing with the warrior like you said is that like that higher purpose it's like you're delivering something for another thing and if you look at your youtube channel from from what i've gathered from it as well you're giving information you've absorbed it you've learned it and you're passing it on to others free of charge effectively which is which is in terms of in my opinion as well what a warrior would do um i like that as well i like that yeah concept. i appreciate that i mean it's always been the intention i always remember when i chatted to emmett kind of years ago so emmett lewis i'm sure people who are listening probably know emmett um the splits wizard but he's been a bit of a mentor for me over the past I don't know how many years. Um, and his advice was like, yeah, just give everything out for free. Like, you know, information should be free. And I agree with him. I've always had a frustration with um, this kind of uh, secret aspect of the fitness industry, like this little fitness secret. Pay me all this money and I'll tell you my secret that will help you. Like, nah, information should be free. What, what you should be charging for, you know, because you should be charging for things as a coach. At the end of the day, this is your livelihood. You've got to make money. But what you should be charging for is like the application, your service. You know, you're helping people to implement it into their lives or to coach them through. That's what you should be charging for. But the information itself, like, you know, I think people should have access to it so they can decide what they want to do if they want to do anything with it at all. Mm. Yeah, so the information would be seen as a, as a tool 
Whereas the paid aspect would be seen as like the application of those tools to the person on an individual basis or as a group basis yeah. where you're actually spending time with someone. So it's, it's their time you're paying for your, for your time. Yeah, effectively. It's, it's the service. Yeah. But the information itself, like I would, you know, I'd give anyone the free information. I think it should be just, you, know, you have a kind of a right to have access to it. And I think, you know, with the internet and stuff, everything's kind of out there to some degree. It depends on how hard you want to look. Yeah. That's the challenge though, isn't it? I think as, as any practitioner, because there's so much information, I know this has been talked about on countless podcasts and countless uh, media channels, is that there's so much information. That's, that's um, true. I it's mean, toxic, like, isn't it? And now we're producing, you know, you're producing a podcast. And like, you know, I'm sure there's probably a few podcasts talking about roughly similar things. It's like, how do you discern what is right, what's wrong? I mean, it depends what you define as right and wrong as well. That's the thing. Yeah, it's, it's going to be that self-experience, isn't it? I think that's where credibility, like looking at people who have experience in their field and are willing to adopt opposing sides of arguments and different yeah. look at um, a multifaceted approach to training and life in general will have a, a huge crossover. So I think I personally think that's really important as I can definitely see that with your work as well, Tom. Yeah, I, I think as well, like if, if you see somebody who's like instantly discounting methods and being like this is my way is the only way to do it like i would you know i would treat their advice with caution because you know i think they're coming at it from a slightly either closed or dogmatic perspective as we said at the beginning like just because i'm body weight doesn't mean i only do body weight like you know you you yourself use i don't know how many different sort of practices and methods you do with martial arts you do indian clubs do hand balancing strength training like you use all of these aspects really and, and i think um if you see somebody straight away and they're like, this is bad. I only, I'm the only person doing the right stuff like that's that for me is a red flag really. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I personally feel like I personally went through that stage in my late teens, early twenties where it's like, Oh no, this must be the way it's, it's mm -hmm. not about this or it's not about using this system in reality as the years have gone on, it's become how can I use this system to benefit? It's up to me to find the the details within bodybuilding mm -hmm. within powerlifting with all these different things because everything's going to have different attributes that you can pull out at any time because timing is yeah. everything isn't it i mean mm -hmm. you could pull something out of a bodybuilding scenario to strengthen your bicep which improves your elbow function or your yeah, triceps yeah. um but the, the the functional methods definitely used lightly yeah. But it's like, you know, if you do that all the time, then it might be negative. Whereas, you know, as you said, the timing is important. It's the right drill at the right time for the right person, which is the hard thing to understand. And, and that's the value of a coach, isn't it, really? That's where the free information doesn't disseminate between... Because the person's going to have to make an assessment on the, their own practice, but there's value in someone pointing at something in your practice and saying, you need to sort that out. You need to improve that because that's the weak link that's where you need to fortify because that's going to be your downfall if you let it progress or maybe it has already. Yeah. I think that's the hard thing to communicate on social media. Cause it's like, because I think like obviously people want to check stuff out and people want to come up with things that are new and it's like everyone putting out a lot of content um, generally. And it's, it's like, yeah, I, I guess they, th they all have their place, but it's like a when and where. And I think people often fall into the trap. They're like, Oh, okay. We need to be doing everything at the same time. Um, and it's like, no, you can just cycle it. Like, you know, don't cons people, people think, I think they think too small a picture. Like they would consider the session they're training, just the one session. 
Whereas like I would consider a practice maybe something that's a few years or or, or even a lot, you know, you could you know, take it to the extreme and say it's a lifetime. Where it's like, hey, if we want to develop a skill or whatever, we don't need to be doing all the different aspects of that skill in just one session. We could develop something for a few months that might build our base for certain things. And then we might focus on something else for a few months to complement that. And, it, you know, you start piecing the puzzle over the period of a year. That's, you know, that's what I think of like as a training sort of cycle as opposed to most people's perspective is like, how can I fit all of these different aspects into just one session itself? And that's where you just end up with just doing too much and making no progress in anything. Well, that's why, isn't it? Like if you look at a strength and conditioning perspective, it, most things are done over like a, a one-year basis. Or if someone's training for the Olympics, a four-year basis. Yeah, four-year four cycle, yeah. Which is, yeah. which is huge. And then most of... Most of us are saying, right, in a week, in seven seven day period, yeah, yeah. I somehow need to fit twenty five hours of X, Y, and Z in because it's, it, yeah, we. This is the thing that I actually looked at a few years back, and it, when you enjoy multiple skills or you enjoy many different disciplines, and you want to be more of a have a generalist approach to training as opposed to focusing on one specific skill, it's very easy to get lost, isn't it? Very easy to get lost in so much volume that recovery is impeded and you're not yeah. actually making any progress in anything. Mm -hmm. I've definitely been there myself. And if we take, if we take body weight, body weight training as a, as a super simple example, it's like, Hey, you've kind of got your core lifts, which are handstand push up, one arm chin up, front lever and planche. When I first started training for them, I was like, okay, I'm going to train for them all at the same time, which is, I, to be honest with you, I feel like most people end up in that place because you think, okay, I've got to have, a vertical pushing movement, a vertical pulling movement, a horizontal pushing. And it's like, yeah, you have to have that balance in the long term. But in the shorter term, like, you know, there's you're not going to make great progress in all of these things if you just focus on all of them at the same time. It's like you'd be better off spending a few months, you know, okay, I'm going to build the base for, uh, focus on the handstand push-up. I'm going to have a little bit, of, like maybe 20% of my work going towards like maintaining my plant stuff. Um, and, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, once you attain something, it only takes about one sixth of the, the volume to maintain it. Yeah, I think, I think that's the th so what you're basically alluding to is like you, you're prioritizing one skill, one mm -hmm. or two skills, maybe, but the rest go into a maintenance mode. So the volume yeah. is lower um, and the intensity might be lower on those things. So it's almost like a five to 10 sets, for example, per week, as opposed to trying to hit 20 sets or 30 exactly. sets to really get that sort of um, basically putting an overload on the system or undue stress yeah from many different approaches because it's, like, it, it's the nervous system as well isn't it it's not just the muscle group yeah yeah exactly a lot of, especially when you're going high end stuff i mean i was going to mention like flexibility is quite a good one to talk about especially when it comes to nervous system like you know you've been doing flexibility work for so long you're you know you're super flexible you you, you probably actually don't have to do too much as a practice to maintain that it's like a little bit of daily kind of moving around greasing the groove doing your thing it's actually very little like focus work if you wanted to make progress then yeah maybe you need to do some sessions a week, but actually just keep that in place. It's, it's not too much. Mm, it's almost like pancake as an example. So for people that don't know what pancake is, uh, sat on the floor, legs wide, basically folding forward, trying to get sort of your torso flat to the floor. Um, that is something that if I was to leave it for a few days, I'd see maybe a 10% regression um, mm -hmm. or, or, or it's basically in the, the end of the range. So I could basically put that in maintenance mode and maintain 80 to 90%, which I feel is quite generic with many practitioners. Same with the handstand, same with all these other things. But like you said, if you want to progress in it, if you want to start working into deeper postures, obviously that's very dependent on the way the body is made, uh, mm -hmm. the way it's formed. 
that's all going to be dependent on stress, sleep, etc. Yeah. But yeah, you can basically maintain that skill, but not develop through it. So um, I, I think as well, that is the value that like we go back to saying coaching. That is the value of having a coach. And you say, I'm not progressing in this field. And they can take other bits away for you and say, that's where you need to focus. You need to be looking in this direction and not worrying about these other skills that you're obsessed with. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's hard to do that as well, especially if there's a bit of like, you know, ego attached to it in the sense that like, oh, this is what I do. I'm or, or, you know, even just like, you know, both of us have trained together a lot with the one-arm handstand and the amount of time and effort that you put into that skill. Like, it's, it's really hard to be like, okay, now I've kind of got it and I want to do other things. I need to not train it so much. And there's like, but what if you lose it? Like, you've been three years. I don't know how we did the maths the other day. It was like, I don't know, 2,000 hours or something of training. I was like, ah, oh, it's a lot of time. <laughs> it is. And it's when you think about like the whole Bruce Lee concept of 10,000 kicks done correctly not just 10,000 kicks because 9,000 kicks done incorrectly could take you in the wrong direction. So it's actually worse for you. Um, so yeah, yeah. 2000 hours in the big perspective, it's like, do we need to de dedicate like another 15 years or something to this to actually like start to really master it? I use loosely, but yeah. to start to master a movement pattern. Yeah. I mean that, and that's a big one with handstands as well. Do you know what it reminds me? I think one of the best advice I got when I was learning golf as a kid, I always remember, um my golf coach was like practice makes per uh, permanent not perfect that was always his his phrase and i was like actually that's a really like especially the body weight stuff it's a really applicable uh phrase especially with handstands so many people with handstands just like rock up go on the wall and they try to balance but they're not really thinking about it they're just they're just going through the motions um or you know even in a worse extent they're just they're they're focusing on the wrong thing maybe they've seen something on social media that doesn't necessarily apply to them but they think like oh this person's talking about it, therefore it's the thing that i need to focus on and it actually ends up like developing something badly is you know you always need to keep check on like what you need to work on especially if hands on something it just needs to be conscious you need to like film look re re like film look assess go back how does it feel uh, again a thing from golf i think because golf and handstands is, is, is very similar it's a very neurological movement there is definitely a physiological element but it's it's very much about timing reactions fine tuning as well um and in golf when you're when you're working on something what you do is maybe you're on the range hitting some shots and you'd hit three three you'd sort of batch things up into maybe threes or fours and this is what i tell people with handstand training um so you know say we're working on whatever swing thought it is you know you, apologies for anyone who doesn't play golf this might be slightly boring but for the sake of the analogy, it's kind of, it's useful. Um, so you might be thinking about like turning through more of the shoulders or whatever it is. And you do, out of your three or four shots that you're going to break this down into, you would do two where you really overemphasize that thing that you're working on. Like massively, to the, to the most you can overemphasize, you overemphasize. And then the third and the fourth one, you just try to hit it. You just try to do it. Don't think about it too much. And I really like that with handstands. It's like, say there's something you're trying to work on. Say it's you're trying to push up in the shoulders. You're trying to... Uh, be more conscious about where your legs are in space or if you're working on one arm how the flag feels all of this sort of stuff. really overemphasize to the absolute maximum that you can do for a couple of sets don't worry about the result just focus on that feeling do that and then rest come back and then just try to do the thing don't worry about the feeling just try to do the thing you're kind of like trying to couple where you're trying to reinstate it in the nervous system really get it um get it synced in there and then hopefully then just do the play and the reacting and the, and the doing side of things. I mean, you see, it's a good concept because you see that a lot in, um, so studying Filipino martial arts, you see in the schools, they teach the kid like a classical style, which means mm -hmm. that you over 
emphasize the pattern. So they're bigger than they need to be. Mm-hmm. In reality, it's a very tight pattern. It's a very, you can shrink it down, but it's harder to have a small pattern that you then make bigger because for the nervous system, it hasn't accessed that range yet. Yeah. So by doing those large patterns, you can dial it back really quick and you can get quicker in that shorter period of time as well when you do start to work at close range. And yeah, I'd agree with the handstand. I think equally you're giving your brain like one specific task to focus on. And we are as human beings. Yeah. We do multitask to a degree, but in reality you are distributing a certain amount of attention between different points of attention. So it's Mm going to be at the detriment of some other attribute, but like you said, once it, yeah, once you get into the subconscious, it's just part and part of the process. You don't have to think about that anymore. So naturally you'll push up naturally. Mm -hmm. You have that elevation of the shoulders and some people might be listening that might think, well, it's just a handstand. Um, so, but I mean, just take that and apply that to like any, any sport that that person does it doesn't need to be handstands because some people just do handstands for fun of it. Then they don't need to think about it on this level, but like anything you're thinking about, it kind of applies just that they're definitely the better the coach, the better your coach is or the coach is the less cues they should be giving you, or it's more about giving the right cue at the right time. So, you know, again, just thinking of things in the bigger picture, like we might work on one thing for a short period of time and then that will then feed into the next thing. We don't need to think like about the 20 different cues that you can give somebody for handstand. You can like push up, pull ribs in, tuck the pelvis, squeeze the glutes, pull the legs together, point the toes, squeeze. Like you're not going to be able to do all of those things well. And you're probably going to forget a few anyway. Well, it's like, I'm not saying I'm a good cook by any means, but it's like cooking <laughs> if your timing's off. If your time is off, you're going to have a horrendous meal. Like yeah. think things won't be cooked properly and some things might be overcooked. And I think that dials back to coaching. Like you said, it's like sometimes dropping a comment in there that feels detrimental to you as well. Like the, that bruises your ego slightly also has this knock on effect that it might stay with you for two years. And it's like, why did he say that? Ah, now I get it. Yeah, two, yeah. three years later, now it makes sense. And I think that's the value of a long-term journey as well. Like you said, like having long-term goals, like a handstand, because you're not just focused on, you need things to unfold. And some of the best ways to learn are to learn them yourselves and make those mistakes until they're actually, you have a reference point to link that concept to. So it unfolds in your way, in your mind, in, through your body, your experience. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, th- I think that kind of goes with like, it's nothing, it's actually not that bad to do the wrong thing. Like sometimes the wrong thing's really useful. Like I've definitely probably learned the most about a skill or my training or whatever when I've done the wrong thing. I've been like, oh, this just doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Because you kind of, if you if you only ever train perfectly, you don't, you don't, you know, not realizing what you're doing wrong, um, definitely can 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 reduce your learning, especially for things like handstands. You're like, okay, this is what it feels like when I do it badly, and I don't know not to do that in the future. It's one of those things, isn't it? I think this is the value of social media and probably yourself with the amount of footage you got online you probably look back at certain things and go damn was that did i really do that did i really have a handstand that looked like that but it's part of the process isn't it you can reflect back on it and go how did that feel like maybe and also reflecting back on these things is is a a valuable tool to teach students with because you were in that position and it's good for people to see that progress yeah yeah absolutely i think sometimes when people get to the super high levels then also they aren't necessarily the the best coach for the everyday sort of people because they're just they're, they're so far it's not their fault they're just they're too good <laughs> like they don't they don't appreciate the struggle they don't appreciate the, the the small things that are really hard almost like the best coach is the person who's like just a little bit ahead of you 
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose that is another value, isn't it? It's like there's huge benefit. I've got quite a few friends that teach, um, as, as you have as well, like mutual friends that teach children on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And I think that's, a, that's an incredible thing to do because you it's are, hard. yeah, and you're dialing it back. Like you need to be on point with your coaching as well because adults in, in many ways are easier. Um, I actually get a good friend of mine on here that does it for a living as a strength and conditioning coach. For children. Um, for, for children as well at a college. And I think... Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're teaching people from from zero. You know, if, you, if you're teaching an adult, there's a likelihood they've got some past experience that they can draw from to help them understand they've already got some myelinated pathways that they can help piece together to figure out the problem that you're passing but kids yeah usually it'll be the first time that they've experienced that thing Mm. and i think it's um i think it's a two-pronged approach really in terms of you've got you've got a beneficial side but you've got a blank canvas so you've got something to work with so if a pattern hasn't been ingrained you're almost creating the pathway instead of driving down with your bulldozer trying to dig up the path that they have done because they've been in the wrong direction or because the patterns are so set in as an adult that you spend one year just trying to unwind the pattern and then put it in so it's yeah i I think there's benefits to both aspects of training adults and children um but again i think that's where coaching is is an art is is a skill and i'm Mm -hmm. not professing to have it down by any means but i think it's part of the process you try and take on board yeah you need to take on board yeah, absolutely. I agree completely. Still, so you, still very much figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a long journey. I probably, and, and it's going to be one of those things you never perfect because everyone's different and it's always a, a two way thing, isn't it? Yeah. All the best coaches are some like 60 year old random guy or gal, like sat in the chair in the corner that looks like they should know nothing and they're just like come in and the right thing at the right time because they've, they've seen it before. They've been there, they've done it, they've experienced it, and they're like, okay, this is what you need the whole idea of guru was basically as well like was to answer questions with questions so that you you weren't being given the answer they were mm-hmm. finding it from you and i think again that is something that we're compelled to going back to what we we're talking about earlier we're now compelled in this current environment for quick answers to quick questions and in reality it should be go away and work on it come mm-hmm. back to me and tell me how you get on and you probably get another question to go away with and work on yeah yeah I feel like almost, you know, the access, because essentially, you know, we have access to the world's information in your pocket right on a smartphone. But I think it's made us dumber to a degree because, you know, instead of going out and being like, okay, let's go have a look and try and figure this out. We're just like, look up on our phone and be like, okay, I know it now. But but the, the depth in which you know something probably isn't that much. Whereas if you would have to go out and try and figure that thing out that you've just looked up you'd probably you know as i talked about you find the bad ways the, the wrong ways to do it you'd find a couple of possibilities you, you'd, you'd understand much broader around the subjects or the thing that you're trying to figure out rather than just be like okay there's the answer yeah and again if that's always apparent in the current environment you're missing some vital steps that really when you come to teach someone else if you haven't practiced mm-hmm. which is the value of coaching and practitioner go hand in hand in my opinion and i've been very fortunate to to find as as you have and train with people that are religiously studying mm-hmm. practicing all the time they are practitioners first and foremost coaches a, a second and sometimes sometimes um that person may get older to the point where maybe they're not practicing as much but their knowledge has been developed over 30 or 40 years which has huge credibility mm-hmm. um I, I, I knew a gymnastic teacher that basically just stand there 
as they're walking past and just little taps on the lower back as they're doing the flips, tiny, yeah. tiny movements, but their timing was perfect. So as a coach, uh, that value was there, but you can't Google that stuff. You, you no, can't. No, no, no. How do I assist someone doing a t- like tumbling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you just do you got to work with loads and loads of people and, and trial and error sort of to figure it out, learn from people. And, and there's, a, yeah, the, yeah, I suppose it does come back to that, doesn't it? It's like the, the journey you've created, and I've talked about this in, in the previous podcast as well. It's like that journey has huge importance because it's forming your foundation. It's not a case of there's a goal, there's a goal, there's a goal, big tick. It's like, did I, what did I learn from that process? And is that process, um, the values have drawn from it are they just subjected to learning like a front lever? Like, cause the front lever is pretty worthless at the end of the day. Like, is it really going to do anything for us? And maybe escaping someone like there's a jumping through scaffolding. But um, the reality is, is like the attributes you've learned personally about dedication, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. There's a, men- there's a mental aspect to any of these skills that take time to develop. You can't just like, just do, you create some, you know, you train your, your mental fortitude. I mean, I'm sure like you probably do this, like Marines, they actually, you know, they train for this, right? Through physical thought, they just give you something horrifically horrible that you're going to have to do and just endure. And like the, the actual doing the task isn't like what you learn for the physical aspect isn't important. It's like the mental ability to just suffer and get through that, that, that experience. Yeah, being dunked in cold water at 2 a.m. doesn't have many, <laughs> many things that translate over to life apart from putting up with embracing the suck, I suppose, is embracing one of the, the, the sayings yeah. you have. I mean, it is, that's a military it's phrase. I didn't, yeah. I didn't coin it at all. It's yeah, like, U.S. military, like, yeah. Yeah, it just, it just applies to this sort of training. It applies to many things in life. Yeah, it's about putting up with... Um, it's about pushing through sometimes as well, isn't it? Because we, we tend to think this development curve should be always on the up but as you've learned recently as well like one of the questions i have for you today was like how do you deal with injury because obviously that's quite a, a relative thing at this point because of uh, i'll let you tell the story but hmm. how things have, have come about like development has setbacks but they're not yeah. really setbacks if you embrace it the lessons you learn from it yeah um i mean injuries i've you know I, I feel like we have a little bit of a perception, just just as just a general comment, um, that nothing bad should happen to us. You know, we're we're at a point where we've we've got technology, we've got all this understanding. No, no bad things should happen. We should be happy all the time, and all sort of stuff like ah, it's, it's an unrealistic. Like, you know, you can't have happiness without sadness. You can't have, you know, you can't be strong and and feel robust without having that experience of what it feels to not feel that way. You've got to have that contrast. Not that I'm saying that you need to be injured, um, but sometimes it's just it's just part of the journey, especially when you're pushing your body um, to the extremes. Especially maybe sometimes you don't know what you're doing about. If you're working at a new thing, you haven't necessarily got the guidance. You need to push yourself to the limit to find whether you know that limit is. To some sometimes, I'm not saying all the times. Uh, I'm trying to justify my injuries here. <laughs> <laughs> but it happens it, it happens yeah and what, what you're saying is like it's a form of you stress so it's controlled stress so your your aim is not to get injured but in reality that is always a factor but the, the only way we're going to really build resilience is by going into those areas and and working with them because it's like we've seen uh just because the insurance companies 
I need, want you to move in a certain way and pick up boxes in a certain way doesn't mm. mean that that's the only way the human body works because the more we more we only sort of keep ourselves isolated to particular patterns, very linear patterns, when we do move out of that box, that's where the issues occur. That's where the injuries are waiting yeah, for yeah, us. Yeah, it's, it's actually what if you only ever you know expose yourself to a, a small a small fraction of those things because you're scared of injury, actually probably the likelihood is you're more likely to get injured. I would, you know, I'd definitely argue that point. Um, but I mean, yeah, I've, I've had countless injuries over the years, most of which are just through being stupid, not knowing better. Um, you know, I would actually attribute pretty much all of them to not knowing better, you know, <laughs> um, but now I know better, hopefully. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it's one of those things you think we always think where we're at is, is in a good place. Like we think, yeah, I, I, I know a bit. I mean, you, I think all of us as coaches tend to get a form of like imposter syndrome where you're thinking, oh, do I know that? And I think that drives you to study more. In my opinion, it should yeah, yeah, drive you to study more to to find out what you don't know. Um, but yeah, there's always the unknown. You're working with a new client, a new person, things are different, bodies are different. They respond differently at different times of the day. So you're always going to, especially in workshop scenarios where you've got like 70 people, well, hopefully yeah. we'll get back to that, but 70 people moving around you and it's like, right, try and do this okay this is going to have to modify for you and you and you and that's the value of working with loads of different people um and getting hands-on as well which is something that i've definitely missed i, I know you have we were just talking before this yeah, about yeah. how long it's been since we've had physical workshops and i've got my first one coming back in, in sort yeah. of the next week and stuff and I'm, i know you've got a few booked up soon as well well i had I, i'm actually at the point where i'm like i just haven't booked anything I, it's not even on my radar at the moment um i would like to but you know, I'm like, just, I don't know. I, I the yeah, I, I just want to see what happens. I think I think it would probably be okay with what you're doing, but um, yeah, I just I don't want the responsibility if uh, if I have to suddenly cancel last minute and people have got flights and expectations. It's just, it's just not a nice position to be in. Okay, so we'll uh, so they'll be delayed slightly. Well, that was actually one of my next questions because yeah, I thought we had a few booked up. So it's um, yeah, I mean, it is challenging as well, isn't it? Like setting up events. So obviously anyone that's, that's listening that is a, is trying to get events set up and stuff, the, the challenges of that have obviously been quite a big deal over the last year. And I suppose yeah. I suppose that's where the online content for you personally is, has been beneficial because you you coach online as well, don't you? So you've yeah, got exactly. a number of clients that way. It's, um, it's more that, you know, as you said, so workshops are awesome. You know, I love attending workshops. I love teaching workshops. Both are great. And um, I don't want to, I don't want to do like a half-assed version, basically. Uh, I think it kind of, you kind of, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying yours, yours will be. I'm sure you, you're sure yours will be great with the current. It's all good. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know how to get on. Yeah, exactly. I want to, I want to make sure that I can, you know, put on the, put on the, the workshop to the, to the degree that I want to as well. And then also, I teach workshops with Ulrich, who's Norwegian, and there's, there's also sort of like those travel restrictions and all those other things to consider. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a challenging time for, I think, for a lot of people, a lot of um, practitioners, coaches and stuff, and there's definitely going to be that adaptation uh, people process. People who want to, I, I want to go to some workshops. I want to meet up with people. You know, that the community is the best part of this. I think that's something you don't, realize that exists with things like coming back to the handstand briefly is that how hand balancing is has such a strong community attached mm -hmm. to it like a load of people that are basically trying a skill that no one's perfecting but it's just i think there's value in that there's a lack of um, ego generally in, in mm -hmm. the handstand community because 
you don't tend to attract people with big egos into a skill that takes forever to learn. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. I mean, unless you unless you develop that ego over the years that you've taken to to figure it out. But no, I completely agree. Uh, you know, to the point at which you know we we've travelled a couple hours to to Bristol to go make time to go train with people um i do think it's a really important factor if you can find people and connect with people in person like it's nice to chat to people online but there's a big difference between making online friends and making in real life friends and i would highly encourage everyone to to kind of reach out to people and try and set up some sessions and and train and get to know other people so it's the best part of it oh definitely i think having a like a week workshop i generally see like months of progress in a week and also that motivation lasts for so long, you know, the, the, what you get out of that. I don't remember the conversations that I have with people on Instagram, but I definitely remember, you know, experiences that I've had with people when I've eventually or, or met them. Mm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's also a good excuse to try and get to places like Bali. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ibiza exactly. and yeah, it's all good. It's a um, and a learning experience. Yeah, and, but, that, but that's how, it, in my opinion, that's, if you can make it like that, if you can feel like your work and your your skill and everything's intertwined where it's part of your passion, and th- that's how it should be, in my opinion, is that, or at least working towards that. Because if you love, I mean, it comes back to sort of the older sayings, isn't it, around if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life uh, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is always a grind. Like it t- took me 12 years, 13 years just to get, to the point where I could feel like I could teach and make a living out of it, doing other jobs to to pay for that. And you've yeah. probably seen the same thing, like doing other bits and pieces along the way and houses which you're doing now and various investments that you you need these other things to, to contribute to the bigger picture. It's not just a case of I'm going to coach and that's all I'm going to do because it doesn't tend to always work that way. Yeah, yeah. And I, but I mean, I think it comes back to like that experience of things that you, if, you, if you end up, I see, I see a lot of people who who try to be life coaches at like twenty two? <laughs> like, dude, I, I'm 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 twenty six. I still I know I feel like I know nothing. I don't think I'm gonna feel like I don't know if I'm ever gonna feel like I know something. You know, um, you can't you can't be going around doing that. You need some life experiences. You need to go do other things and experience other things. The other, I mean, I've definitely seen that it's like the more the more you move through life and. It will, any year that goes past if you're into learning you open up another door mm-hmm. and within that door there's many other doors that come off the back of that so you all you end up doing is actually opening up more space and going i know less and yeah yeah, yeah. that that's the way i see it you having a kid probably was was that experience it is continuing to be that experience yeah. <laughs> i can't imagine that is, that's, that's crazy to me yeah it, it is um yeah, I think it's one of the best experiences you can go through it. And it, mm-hmm. it's very different to many others because there's uh, other attachments, you know, emotional attachments and stuff as well. And um, you are you are like the coaches as parents or the coach yeah. if you're a single parent. And um, they are constantly looking at what you're doing. So you always, you're trying to represent constantly uh, the values and, and things you're trying to sort of, you're trying to build in good habits from a young age because mm-hmm as we know, it's like what you were saying about building skills for a lifetime, like what you give as a child and what you pass on has a huge crossover to adulthood. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's, you know, countless evidence to support like 
how important developmental years are and you know you're bringing a, a human into the world <laughs> should be taller than me soon anyway so <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> by about six <laughs> six is being generous um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I was going to say that to you as well. Like what major changes in views and methods do you feel that you've gone through in say the last 10 years? Like say the difference between sort of your late teens um, and, and now, uh, like if, do you view training very differently or um, just slight tweaks or has it been any, anyone significant, well, any significant input from anyone in particular that's really changed that as well? I'm certainly training less. That's probably the main thing I would say. Um I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'm moving less. I'm just training less. Um, so, whereas before, certainly, you know, when I was really getting into this first couple of years, like I was doing, I don't know, six days, six days a week, easily, a couple of hours a day, maybe a little bit longer, various different things. Um, I don't think I could hack that now. Certainly with the the strength training sort of side of stuff. Whereas, yeah, you know, six days a week. But to be fair, the progress I made actually wasn't great. Like now I'd, I'd train strength training wise. I'll do a couple of sessions a week, three sessions a week, maybe at most at the moment. Um, by the way, this is a snapshot in time. Doesn't mean that that's always going to be my training. Sometimes I'll do more, sometimes I'll do less. But uh, yeah, like the, the, the last couple of years, I've probably done less actual like strength work, but it's been much more carefully considered with how it's been done. The quality has been higher um, and my progress has been way way more than it has been in the past so certainly the less is more approach uh but that doesn't mean like the rest of the time you just sit on the sofa and you know i think ultimately just gives you more time in life to do other things as well uh, you know hand sands obviously takes up a lot of time but i've got some other hobbies play golf as you said do some housework sort of stuff that always takes takes time to do development things so i'd say probably yeah probably the main difference is i've trained less focusing on trained less and focused on fewer things so as we alluded to beforehand, I was trying to do lots of different things at the same time. Whereas now I train a bit less and I focus on a few things, but I focus on, I try to focus on things that give me like a nice breadth of, um, of, of reward. So, um, I still try to, although my focus is somewhat specific, I try to train things that give me a reasonable amount of transferability when I'm, when I'm training, you know, um, apart from that, I'm trying to think what else, what else you say what's changed from the beginning yeah and also it's like who i mean would you say emmett's had a huge input into your learning process as well yeah i've learned a lot from emmett um i've learned a lot obviously emmett's been been a coach for a few years now you know he's a i i always consider him like he's still 10 years ahead of me essentially um and and he's got a great breadth of knowledge about a lot of things he's gone quite heavily into the martial arts you've gone heavily into the martial arts there's something that's on my radar um, it's something that I want to delve into, but it's just now I don't think is the right time for me to do that. It's just it's, it's there in the back of the head anyway that I would like to consider. Uh, I've learned a lot from Ulrich, uh, Ulrich on hands. If people don't know him, he's a he's a the person I teach workshops with. Um, we've got a very different approach. His, his approach is like, what's the most that I can do to get the results that I want? And mine's like, what's the least that I can do? What's the, what's the minimum effective dose? So it's always been interesting having conversations with him because it's like a very different mindset. Um, but you know, he he always reminds me that I need to work harder <laughs> at things. Like Ulrich works hard. Um, there's there's value in that, isn't there? Having those friends that you, you sort of go and train with, and it just pushes you on a bit more. Mm -hmm. um, equally, it's always good to have someone that just says, "Do you think you're doing a little bit too much? Like, yeah, do you think yeah, you've yeah. pushed a little bit too hard?" And sometimes that has to be you. Sometimes that has to be 
down to your energy levels when you wake up, when you uh, adopt some of the habits you have, because obviously uh, this falls on nicely from the last podcast as well with Ryan is that like sun exposure and, and what nutrition yeah. are you getting and your lifestyle habits around like cold heat, all that sort of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something would, would you say you've dialed into that more recently as well? Yeah. I mean, we, we've both learned a hell of a lot from Ryan. I've known actually Ryan was one of the first like internet friends that I had in this space. Um, I think I've known Ryan like six, probably seven years now. Um, but I've definitely learned a lot from him. It's something that I've always, I've always enjoyed that, like, you know, on an inverted commas, holistic aspect of things. Um, one of the first like fitness books I read was, was Paul Check's How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy, which I think is a fantastic book, regardless of what you think of Paul. It's just a really well-rounded approach to like moving, eating well, lifestyle, because the lifestyle is massive. Um, you can't you can't out train a bad diet and a bad lifestyle. I know it sounds like cliche, but it really is. It's huge. Um, I've certainly Ryan's turned me on a lot more to the light aspect of things. I don't want to go into that if, if people have listened to the to the last podcast. I don't want to go into that in massive detail because Ryan knows a lot more than I do. Um, but certainly it's been a it's always been something that I've known is 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 good for me. Even though like it's been said as not like my my family is. Uh, my dad's side of the family is like almost basically gypsies um and you know my nan my grandma she used to put out her her kids she had three kids she's you know in summer she'd love them up with baby oil and stick them out in the sun just to cry <laughs> <laughs> and she's always maintained she's like no sun is great for you like get out like i was a kid i had bad acne and she was like sit in the sun and i was like just i was just you know it's a very it's just a simple approach i don't think she, she didn't know why she just knew that it was um of benefit and and i've always tried to do that and then ryan sort of you know has brought in that that's that that reasoning as to why um but then made me made me think about that more and i've tried to live try to live more outside as much as i can um it, it certainly made me realize how inside um you become like some days just, to, just especially like if you if you're working from home with covid and stuff i'm like ah shit i didn't, didn't even leave the house there i haven't opened the door you know, and that and that was probably the beginning of this last lockdown, probably about November time. I was just not feeling great, and I think it was probably December, November. It was a bit of that, you know, setting into that seasonal affective disorder sort of thing. And I was like, right, I'm gonna get up and see sunset, sunrise, even every single day. Uh, just go out for a walk first thing. You know, I was I was getting into a bit of a habit of like the first thing I do when I wake up is I sit on my phone for half an hour, and like yes, I'd, I it wasn't always unproductive time. I'd be sat, you know, scrolling, answering some messages, answering clients answering some emails but it's just such a crap way to start the day you know just i think it just screws of your dopamine screws of lots of things actually first thing like take five minutes to come to terms with your existence and then roll out of bed and just get outside get some natural sunlight exposure that was i i challenge anyone to do that and not feel better about their life yeah definitely yeah i used to that was one of the things obviously in the military we spent a lot of time waking up outdoors and mm-hmm. you you do a week in the field just meaning you're on exercise probably yeah. in a forest block somewhere or you go somewhere else and you'd although you come back tired you felt like you were you felt like you you felt better just yeah. just that time in nature but it's something that i carried through and they used to say in the military it's like you'll, you'll pay thousands for these when you're out the military and i was like yeah 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 everyone thinks oh literally. really really but you do and it's like getting up and going for a swim in the sea mm-hmm. um that's been huge even in uh, this was the first year and obviously i know we were messaging each other during the time it's like 
down on like over Christmas and New Year's when it was freezing, like minus six wind chill, all the rest the of it. The sand was frosty. Yeah, and I know it's nothing compared to some of our friends in like Norway and other areas, but it it was brilliant to actually go through that because that resilience factor is so important mm-hmm. to us as human beings. We're working in these tiny temperature ranges when the reality is that our body's designed to shiver and generate heat. Mm-hmm. Equally, we're designed to sweat and cool down. So there's this this range that we're not allowing our bodies to work into anymore yeah. because like we said about training, it's like if you don't go into those areas, your body it doesn't get used to it anymore. It's not part of its daily hab- habitual uh, way of living. Your body's smart at the end of the day. It's not going to waste resources on being prepared for things that you don't experience. I, just, I actually have a question because you mentioned that. And I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, when, when was it that you can remember feeling at your best recently? Because my, my example would be, uh, I went on a climbing trip, and we went to Fontainebleau, which is just outside of Paris, it's a national park. Uh, they got all these boulders dotted around in the forest. It was like, I don't know, March time, April time. It wasn't particularly warm, maybe like fifteen degrees. Slept on a on a mat out on a tent in a forest had a bonfire every night, sat drunk, probably too much alcohol, too much very cheap wine. Um, arguably, a lot of the time I ended up having like canned foods, like canned ravioli. But every day was waking up at sunrise, was outside climbing all day outside. And, and I felt amazing at the end of that two weeks. And, and and this is at a point at which I was already eating pretty well when I was at home. But I was like, why do I feel so good? Like, I, just, I, don't, I don't know what it was. I can just remember feeling great after that experience um uh, and i think like definitely that being outside it was cold at night waking up at sunrise getting lots of outside exposure because you know if you're camping you're literally outside all the time that was kind of for me in in recent memory like that's probably when i felt like a significant like oh wow i feel really good yeah i'd I'd actually say i'd actually say like i spent a lot of time going away pre say pre-covid um on holiday it was a thing like every time the winter came around i'd always go away uh, so I, I knew that in the winter months I'd feel low. So I've been quite responsive with that sort of stuff because I've been sea swimming. I used to go down at like 5.30 a.m., jump in the sea and do 30 minutes. And that time, continuing again recently over the last year, I'd say being in the sea in the forest um, on, on a daily basis or weekly basis, that has been huge for me. And it's like any time I get drawn into developing new course or building something on, on a computer which takes six to ten hours a day mm-hmm. it's like right reset tomorrow morning get in the forest get in the sea and i'd say that's probably the time where i feel the best and, and i just try and keep that as a small consistent daily thing obviously with the challenge we've just done online as part of the natural edge like having people jumping in bins on a daily basis cold water bins not full of rubbish that's gonna <laughs> That's made a huge difference to people. <laughs> well, some people might have embraced the suck. Exactly. And it's like that cold water. Um, yeah, I'd feel amazing coming out of it. I just just mm-hmm. literally standing out on the beach in the freezing wind and thinking, this is it. You actually feel alive. And without sounding corny in that, you do. You generally feel like you're yeah. more connected to things. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, completely agree. And uh, I think we tend to... we. <laughs> I think we tend to overestimate, like we tend to think we need to do so much, but in reality, small, consistent daily habits, which is one of the reasons I wanted to, to start this podcast was to discuss what habits 
really can be done on a daily basis that really help people like through their life and that you don't need to travel to however nice it is to go to places like Australia, New Zealand, all this sort of stuff. And it's nice to go to those areas or go on holiday. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is actually there in front of you if you look for it or you adapt things to do so. Um, and those rhythms are so important. Um, I'll get back to the habits, but there's there's two things I want to go over. Um, food. I don't want to get massively into like the nutrition side because obviously that's been discussed, but interested, I'm sure people want to know, like how has your food changed over the years and how would you describe your eating habits now um everyone's very different which i'm obviously very keen to put out there and it's something mm-hmm. that ryan was very keen on making a point of but how do you feel yours has changed since late teens again um the first thing that was a big one for me was dropping out wheat which i know is like it's just one of these things like oh i'm gluten intolerant um but genuinely, like that was a, you know, I didn't even consider it beforehand. And I can't remember what book I was reading at the time as some, some, you know, basic high fat, low carbs sort or of diet book. And I just, I just dropped wheat and it was literally like within about 10, 14 days, it, I went from feeling what I thought at the time was 100%, but on reflection was only like 70% to then feeling 100% and literally like 14 days. So I was like, oh crap, that's like, that was a night and day difference to me. Did you say that's uh, in terms of energy or was skin yeah, like, skin an issue or skin was an issue so i had like i've had acne throughout my childhood on reactane which is fantastic it thoroughly enjoyed that experience um and and all sorts of things so you know the only thing that's changed that for me is and, and has improved it my like, skin is all right actually at the moment and that's been like sunlight and good nutrition but then also that's been over a long time so i noted some small changes when i changed my diet but it took like three years of consistent dietary change to see like big changes uh but yeah so that was that was the big one um uh, skin energy generally felt good and then i noticed that like if i accidentally ate some some wheat or some bread or something i'd i'd notice it at that point like, I'd, I'd feel bad i'd have like some stomach cramps or something whereas now whether or not i'm just in a better place I, I don't notice that so much i can eat it and i won't feel bad but certainly if i ate it consistently it wouldn't be a great thing it's almost like a metabolic flexibility aspect isn't it like more yeah probably some element of like gut permeability and you know Mm -hmm. yeah so but i just i just have got used to i don't really crave it don't really want it um i would say that i'm probably animal based um more so probably in the last 18 months I've, i've shifted more towards that way understanding you know once you get out of that mainstream dogma of of animal products and actually realize oh wow there's like this was the health food if you look back at any literature or anything from like the turn of the 20th century like meat was a health food the the no i think the nobel uh nobel medical prize in around that was around sort of 1915 ish was was for two guys who solved anemia with beef liver you know like like it's it's weird we've kind of lost our way with that aspect of things but i I would, I would let people who are far more qualified than i am to talk about that sort of subjects but yeah not underest and uh, not not being um dogmatic about veganness or whatever and, and understanding there is some benefit to, to animal products massive benefits yeah uh, i mean like, i mean have you, have you seen um differences in recovery since you sort of moved more towards uh, an animal way of eating um, again, I'm not trying to be leading with this, but I think it's important to understand that 
if certain minerals exist in our diet, do they impact on our training and our energy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't think I've seen a noticeable difference in recovery. What I can tell you is I haven't been sick. So, Which shows a strong immune system. Yeah, that's that's the main difference. I haven't been sick in 18 months. That's a lie. I did have COVID, which uh, I had for, I had a head cold for about a day. And that was, that was my COVID experience. But yeah, apart from that, I haven't, I haven't been sick. So um, yeah. Uh, I, I, and that definitely, I, that probably has been the biggest notice. And I've, I've also found it very easy to stay lean and build a little bit of muscle without really paying attention to anything. I just kind of eat when I'm hungry. Yeah. And also trying to keep that, like you said, like um, if you're sourcing things locally, that carbon footprint is low or negative. If you're getting it from a, a good source where like cows are grass fed and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, we could go into lots of detail about this, but like it's, it's massively overstated the impact of, of, of animal agriculture in comparison to, you know, just the transport sector, the energy sector. Even if you actually look at the official government data in the UK, uh, I believe uh, agriculture accounts for, I want to say it's 11% of, of total emissions. And the animal agriculture, I think, is, is only about 30 or 40% of that. So, you know, it's, it's actually not much. When people say like, oh, going vegan to save the planet, it's not going to do much in the grand scheme of things. You want to save the planet. It's like, okay, we need to cut. Like, there's a few companies that produce 80% of the emissions out there which is like, you know, Dutch Shell, other things. Stop burning petroleum at the end of the day. Like you're literally pulling carbon, burning it out of the atmosphere. Like even if we're talking about methane and stuff from cows, it's cyclical in nature. You know, cows eat grass, they produce methane, it goes up into the clouds, it comes back into the ground and it's like a cycle. You're never actually adding any more to the equation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, a, that's a much more complicated argument that <laughs> I'm very underqualified to give. <laughs> Yeah, but it, again, it's like trying to, yeah, and the idea of this as well is like I wanted to ask people like what their experiences were, what they'd learned as well, and then also mm -hmm. encourage people to go and do their own research, like look into these these factors where you can actually build your own uh, knowledge around these things, like look at the counter argument to the argument um, and establish a, a theory based on that and go to people that are qualified, like we have qualified people that we know that will pose these questions to and we get um an answer back with a study attached to it which is yeah. always credible yeah. it's good to to question it and also say okay what's the source so i can look at the source myself as well i think that's a good thing to do yeah absolutely and i, and I think as well as like you know i'm not set i think it, I, I i accept a lot of the arguments that vegans have like i don't agree with with factory farming i think it's a it's a a horrible way to raise animals it's why like i spend more money but i try to as as you've said like buy from from local sources um and try to eat like the whole animal don't just eat steak mince chicken breast and also like if i buy a chicken i buy a whole chicken um and then part of that is like just respect for the fact that yes you're eating something that has given its life to to feed you um but i think if you take that to extreme it's like okay we should eat no animals and i'm like well yeah, but how's that gone for us for the last 50 years? Not not great. <laughs> it's very true. Um, but yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, yeah, for those that haven't listened to the, the first episode, then yeah, we, we dive into a few of those things in depth as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm vastly underqualified under to talk about this. I'm just chatting shit on the internet. It... <laughs> <laughs> They're good points. They are good points. Um, 
Yeah, the other thing is uh, coffee. You are a bit of a coffee connoisseur, as I've witnessed over the years. Um, please explain how coffee differs. So let's just say I was going into a supermarket and I bought some uh, a certain brand instant coffee compared mm-hmm. to some of the barista style blends that you're working with. What is the difference and why why shouldn't I be buying it? Not saying I do, but if I do. <laughs> I mean, you can buy whatever you want at the end of the day. Uh, but ultimately, like, consider that coffee is a co- coffee is a commodity, so it's traded on the stock market. So I can't remember the actual percentage. I think it's I think it's around ninety percent of coffee sold. It, might, it probably is more than that. It's going to be commodity coffee, which means that uh, it's grown in large amounts and farmers are paid a fixed price based on stock price or the, the commodity price of that product. So actually, you know, a lot of these gut a lot of these countries where coffee comes from they get a terrible terrible price for their coffee for one so it's, it's not a particularly ethical way to to buy coffee if we're going to go for the ethical side of things but also the standard of that coffee is way lower because people don't care it's about volume at the end of the day um and much like wine or or arguably pretty much anything coffee is a as a as a taste is going to be a product of its environment um you know based on where it's grown how it's grown what the climate is like what the season was like what the rainfall all of these sort of things are going to influence how a coffee tastes um but saying that the main reason is that i like to drink nice coffee and i like to drink tasty coffee so ultimately i try to buy specialty coffee which is you know it's a a fancy way of saying you're buying the the better coffee usually this would be like direct to farmer or you know with a with an independent roaster and they're generally going to pay a better rate to the farmer's in, in those countries i'm actually working on a, on a on a secret project at the moment on my own where i'm trying to source some but again trying to do it in a way that like okay actually means that the farmers the people producing the coffee it's a lot of hands that coffee goes through get a get a reasonable price for for, for what they do um there's obviously some issues as well with um with the quality of coffee you know if you buy cheap coffee it's going to likely have been sat in containers for a long period of time it's going to likely be moldy all of these sort of things if you buy special if you buy specialty coffee it's a nice way of like bypassing everything you're, you're generally going to get higher quality coffee it's going to taste better more money is going to go to the farmer it's less likely to be moldy because it's again mold doesn't taste good it's, it's better tasting coffee all of these sort of things um so i actually i wanted to open a coffee shop when i when i first left school but my dad was like no you gotta go to uni so but coffee's always been a, a, a big passion of mine um but uh, yeah from a from a i think it's one of those few things that actually if you want to have something that's the best product and it tastes good and it gives you the nicest experience it also then has the best environmental impact at the same time the best the actual the best ethical impacts you know so it's a it's a nice combination yeah so you you basically what you're saying when you were saying like getting it from the same farmer so that would be shown as single origin um yeah so you got single origin which would be like okay you know if you bought a starbucks coffee for example they're going to be sourcing beans from all over primarily south america uh you're not going to know the farmers it's going to be big corporations that are growing those beans whereas if you would go to, to a specialty coffee sometimes yes it'll be single origin so that'd be like just one country but actually a lot of the times it'll be like a single wash station so there'll be a wash station in a region of uh, say a 50 mile radius or something so all the farms from that 50 mile radius will put into this one wash station or it might be to the extent of like this is the farmer that grew this lot that you are having um so yeah just just you know if if a, if a coffee has is traceable 
it means that you know most coffees won't be because the coffee isn't worth it so if there's some traceability to the coffee it's probably a good sign if they can say like it came from this area or it came from this war station this farm that's a good sign that it's good coffee it's basically just giving people something to look out for so they were going into looking at a label so they would be looking for stuff like that specialty coffee that sort of stuff yeah if you want to buy good coffee try to find a local shop don't go to the supermarkets like supermarkets are okay but like at the end of the day support local business and then if, if you're supporting local business you're also going to be supporting uh the farmers who grow these beans because by far big companies will buy commodity coffee and farmers don't get anything they get if anything under the cost of production a lot of the times so definitely buy local to support your own local company and also then support the farmers who spend their lives growing coffee nice yeah cut the middleman <laughs> yeah absolutely um okay quick fire ones essential kit if you were traveling you had hand luggage what three items of kit would you take to assist your training and lifestyle as well we could call health in general okay uh 100 gymnastics rings this has to be done because it means like i feel like with gymnastics rings and hand sands you can literally train anywhere yeah basically. i agree so hand that's a hundred percent needs to be done for me um probably magnesium that's, that's about the only supplement that i take anymore is magnesium i just find it very useful for how i feel um just like I can, I can tell if i stop taking magnesium for a week like some of the aura ring stats are quite interesting to see um i would say that's probably it to be honest with you ring rings and magnesium is all i would probably take with me i'm, I'm kind of minimal i used to take a lot more and nowadays i'm like how much stuff can i get rid of in my life slash training and, and still be like okay it's one of those things isn't it it's like going to the gym like when we've trained it's like walking in with <laughs> i tend to walk in with a piece of like piece of ply yeah for hand balancing and so a set of gymnastic rings and i almost say to myself like why am i actually in a gym yeah, why are you in the gym <laughs> like we've gone to the gym on multiple occasions and we've like we've gone in and we trained handstands and we've left all right we literally didn't even touch <laughs> one piece of equipment basically just use the wall just and the floor that's the wall it and the floor there's a lot of value in that when you start hand balancing you actually start looking at walls and floors a lot more and you're like that yeah. is a good wall and that is a good yeah. floor <laughs> <laughs> awesome um future goals anything you're working towards i mean we know the one-arm handstand is there yeah so the one handstand i, I consider is done now now for me it's like it's, it's just fun so which is which is a really nice position to be in after grinding for a few years of that um future goals is um training wise is planche this is kind of the year goal for me although i've got some injuries that i'm just trying to sort out so which is interesting it's like you get injured and it exposes the weakness something to address which will then make you stronger like the amount I've, I've been injured too many times um but i'm still you know up to the point i was last injured <laughs> i was the strongest most skillful that i have ever been you know so um i found another weakness that i need to to address but yeah planche is the big one at the moment for me but then outside of that really like it's just to have fun with my training um and, and enjoy it um and i think i'm going into a bit more of a mobility focus this year i've kind of taken a couple of years where i'm just been letting things happen but um i'd like to have splits and some other things just feeling more comfortable um and i'm also working pretty hard at golf <laughs> i, I want to play off scratch at the moment i'm off uh well, i was off three with the new handicap system i'm playing off one at the moment but that's incredible that scratch, is a... scratch golf would, is the goal at the moment so so this is a, again it's, it's something outside of what i do as a job and essentially most of my life is built around so it's just it's a uh, time away but to that to that level that's basically like people spend their whole careers 
working towards that. So if you can, and obviously you've got experience in that, but to then channel, to have different channels or different focuses and still achieve that standard in golf, that's incredible to still maintain a one-arm handstand of like 10, 15 seconds plus, And then, then we just build in that left arm, isn't it? It's just, <laughs> yeah, I, I genuinely <laughs> think like, I, cause I played golf as a kid and I played off about 10, 12. And then I didn't play it, didn't retouch really it, did a lot of training, but a lot of my training has been coordination based, a lot of flexibility training. I've come back to golf and I'm like, you know, I'm infinite, infinitely better than I was when I was playing all the time as a, as a up until about 16. And I'm sure there's some aspect of just getting older, you get better. But uh, I definitely think training has had a massive impact on on, on how I play golf. Yeah, it's, it's, it's attributes. I think this is the thing about training, isn't it? When you experience multiple disciplines and different things, you sometimes don't know how that will influence other skills or mm -hmm. other disciplines. But then all of a sudden, you might do five different things, come back, and it's like posture's better, alignment's better, timing, hand-eye coordination, all these different yeah different principles that transfer across and obviously all to different degrees. Awesome. Um, to finish every podcast, I'm trying to sort of get this, this same question out there and it's around the human first approach. So uh, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. Obviously you have a wealth of information on your YouTube and social media channels, but what principles would be at the top of your list to form the foundations of your human health and those that you teach i mean 100 get outside has to be number one um even like before training and everything else for me that's like my priority is just being outside in the day um ideally first thing get some get some it doesn't even have to be doesn't have to be sunrise just like the first thing you do just get outside your house even when it's raining and that for me is a really simple habit i don't do it every single day oh i don't i don't do it to the extent in which i like i'll go for a uh, 30 40 minute walk every day but i'll make sure i stand like i'll stand outside and drink my coffee or something you know i'll, I'll make sure one of the first things i do is, is get outside um also make time in the day to do nothing and this is something that has taken me the past few years to learn um but certainly when i first started doing this as a job and i was ended up working at home um and i was like doing it for maybe six months i was like i just don't why do i feel like a little bit depressed a little bit down about stuff and i was like Oh yeah, Tom, you're literally like waking up, working all day, not seeing people, um, not doing anything else. Like no wonder, like you need, you need to have a break. And I think there's a bit of a culture, obviously the culture of hustling. It's great. You need to work hard, but you also need time to do nothing. And especially with phones and stuff, that's becoming increasingly harder. So yeah, that's a skill so in itself. Me, for me personally, I actually combine this together. Like my first thing in the morning is usually like get up, go for a walk. I'll make some coffee. And then I'll grab a book or I'll just sit in the sun if there is sun and, and and I won't think about anything. I won't do anything like that's just that is the time for me personally. I won't look at my phone. That's the 100% rule. Um, so that's probably the, probably the main things. Get outside, get some light and, and, and make some time to do nothing. So it's really dialing in that that human first approach. And, and that's what uh, I think it's that unselfish. Act, sorry, it's, it's like a selfish, unselfish act, really giving yourself that time initially in the day to to start your day correct so you've actually grounded yourself you actually feel like you're right okay i'm awake i've given myself yeah, yeah. some time and now i can give time to others because that fundamentally as a coach that's what your job is mm -hmm. uh, but i think it's, it's it's just like trying to i think yeah the, the doing nothing thing it's just more about like making time just to i don't know enjoy the, enjoy the moment sounds like such a cheesy thing um but it kind of is like there's there's times in which like 
uh, maybe I'm filming some content for YouTube and I'm maybe meeting up with you to do some training or I'm meeting up with somebody else to do some training. And I just, I just like, I don't want to film today. I just want to enjoy the, the moment and, and that session. I don't want to have to do the other things. So I'll just stop filming or stop doing anything. I don't really take pictures outside of, of, of my sort of job based stuff. And that's, it's not to say you can't take photos, but I just, I don't, I've always find it like distracts from the moment, the thing. So, um, yeah, I've been I've been super conscious of that. Probably the last couple of years, I've I've made a, a real focus to like, yeah, have some time of of doing nothing. <laughs> awesome. That's uh, I think that's going to be a bit of a trend as time goes on with this. Is like getting outside. I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that keeps coming up. But we'll see. I'll see how it goes over the next few months of recording these and see if that is a trend. But it's is, definitely is that, something. Has other people mentioned that beforehand? Yeah, I mean, it's something that I've definitely been witness to and just chatting to people that are due on future episodes as well. Uh, it seems to be something that's huge for people's mental health. And I think that's so, so important now is that time outdoors and uh, all the effects of sunlight and all the rest of it. I think it just, it's key. It's key for our, our overall health and on an internal level as well, like how, how our mood is regulated. Hmm. I think it's, I'm sure Ryan probably mentioned this, but I think it's massively underrated just because most, you know, most scientific studies are done in labs. And like we, we have, we, there's, there is definitely um, recorded benefits of you know, going outside. There's been plenty of evidence for it, but when we're looking at a lot of health stuff, it's, it's done in labs. And, and I think until you actually take it seriously on a personal level, um, or even, I'm probably sure, even if you don't take it seriously and do it day to day, you could probably think back to a time like, oh, I felt really good when I've been outside doing x y and z not thinking about this sort of stuff and i think it, it really it sounds so simple that it almost sounds um like it's not valuable it's a bit ridiculous but just because it's simple doesn't doesn't mean it's, uh, <laughs> it's not valuable it uh, yeah. it's something that i've realized a lot over the past couple of years yeah and that seems to be a theme from what we talked about today is like your training has moved that way like you've simplified your training where it's less sessions more focused uh, lifestyle habits are simpler, but again, and giving yourself time, time to think has been really important for what you've achieved over the years. And probably from a creative aspect, you're probably more creative. I would probably guess that when you give yourself that space, you've got more time to think and create videos and that sort of stuff, as opposed to trying to actively think of the next process. Yeah. It's, it's always, always the, yeah, if you're trying to, you know, when you like forget a word, or forget something and you try really really hard it's hard as you can to remember it but it's never gonna it's never gonna come back to you because you're trying to force that to happen it'll come back to you when you're at least suspecting it and not even thinking about it um, <laughs> when you don't actually need it anymore yeah exactly exactly <laughs> brilliant tom absolute pleasure as always um yeah. look forward to catching up again soon but um where can we find you uh yeah so I mean, on any social, well, I say any social media, I only really am on Instagram and YouTube. I don't, I have a, a quite a large Facebook group, which I do keep an eye on, but I don't particularly post in, but it's quite a good community over there. Um, so yeah, at, at the Bodyweight Warrior or Bodyweight Warrior, any of these, or just my name, Tom Merrick. Um, on YouTube, plenty of follow along routines, mainly flexibility sort of stuff, but I do plenty to do with handstands, bodyweight training, and a little bit of nutrition, lifestyle stuff as well. Brilliant. Thanks, mate. Massively appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy. As always, it has been great to catch up with Tom for yet another conversation. I highly recommend checking out his content. All the details for these can be found in the show notes. And if there are any questions at all, please fire them through to Tom or myself. Thank you for tuning in and I will see you again next week.